Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So this is where things get fun, right? The book of Revelation, uh, the seven seals have broken open. You got four horsemen wreaking havoc, the apocalypse. Like what in the world is going on, right? Like what, what is this? Like Johnny Cash, he's got this great little song on the apocalypse where he actually quotes verse one of our text called, when the man comes around. In other words, he's saying the man, Jesus, the God man, when he comes around, like his enemies need to watch out. Stuff's about to go down. All that is wrong with the world is about to get fixed. All that is evil is about to get undone. And this portion of scripture where the man comes around, where the one who's described as both the lion and the lamb that we, we heard about last week, when he begins to unleash God's plan, for the end of time, we have all these strange uh, symbols and images and, and, and pictures. I mean, this is the part of Revelation that where things just get a little funky, right? One commentator by the name of Gerald Daryl Johnson, he points out that most people stop reading Revelation at this point. They just scratch their heads. They don't know what to do. And he says many preachers actually stop preaching it at this point, too, just because it gets difficult. But instead, we're going to plow through. We're going to stick with our series, working through the book of Revelation verse by verse, and we're going to talk about what this particular section truly means. I want you to see how exciting it really is. I want you to see how it gives us a picture of what we might call ultimate reality. Ultimate reality, in other words, uh, we're going to get a sense of something that is more real, more real even than, than things that we can see or touch and experience. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why is it that bad things continue to happen in our world? 
Right? Like if Jesus, the lion and the lamb, has truly triumphed, which his resurrection and ascension proves, right? He defeated the grave. So why do his followers still die? He ascended on high. He, he is mediating on our behalf at the right hand of the throne of, of the Father. He is there at the throne of God, praying for us, interceding on, on our behalf. He sends the Holy Spirit to, to, to help us. And so, and so how do we explain everything that's gone on in our world? Or got, that gone wrong in our world? Like, how do we explain multiple world wars? How do we explain genocide? How do we explain the evils of cancer, of COVID-19, of political strife? How do we explain civil wars and civil unrest and terrorism? Like, if God is on his throne, then why do these things happen? And if you were, if you were even to look only at, at John's historical context, right? Because some of you might be like, "No, that's like anachronism. Like you're, you're just, you're just, you're just uh, imposing our history onto this text." But even if you look at John's historical context that he's writing in, you'll find a series of events that would have likely challenged his own belief that Jesus is on the throne. If you just look at the time that he was alive, you'll see a cluster of historical events uh, that would likely um, challenge the belief of the early church on whether Jesus was really on his throne or not. You had earthquakes that leveled out entire cities, right? We, read it, we, we, we talked about this a little bit in the letter to the seven, letters to the seven churches. You had persecution of the church, followers of Jesus being persecuted, thrown in prison, tortured to the point of even death at times, especially after the fall of Jerusalem when, when, when persecution just, just increased. You had the suicide of Nero in 68 AD and the chaos that erupted from that. There's four different ruling uh, parties were, were vying for the throne, and, and there's all this strife uh, and, and chaos uh, in, in, in the kingdom related to that. We famously had the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the first century that buried entire cities. Widespread famine that eventually brought the empire almost to its knees. So all these things considered... Even in John's context, like all those things just happened in the first century when John was writing the book of Revelation. So even if we just considered those things, if Jesus is on his throne, which is what Revelation 4 and 5 and, and, and the vision that he got there revealed and unveiled is that Jesus is on his throne, then why does this world continue to be such a place of evil and misery? Why is that? You ready to hear the answer? It's because Jesus, in his sovereign wisdom, he allows the curses of evil, which began from Genesis 3 on, 
the curses of sin when it entered creation. Jesus allows the curses of evil, even as they continue to gain speed as they see the threat to themselves of the gospel. Jesus allows the curses of evil to run their course as an exercise of judgment upon the world. He allows the curses of evil to run their course as an exercise of judgment on the world. I recently watched a movie um, where the bad guy, um, like one of the bad guys was, uh, he, he wanted to, to weaponize, it was like a, it wasn't technically a virus, but it was like a type of virus, all right? So he wanted to weaponize a virus in order to take out a specific guy, like his arch enemy, like the good guy. But instead of taking out the good guy, someone else sort of co-opted this bioweapon and ended up targeting all the bad guys in the area instead, and the good guy was spared. And in some sense, I mean, if you draw it out enough, like the analogy starts to break down, but in some sense, that's what's happening here as the seven seals begin to open. You see, because ever since the fall, uh, the fall of humanity into sin, which we read about in Genesis 3, ever since the fall, the curses of sin infect all of creation, right? And now creation groans, as the apostle says, creation groans waiting for the day that, that Jesus will make it new, will heal it will restore it back to the way things were in the garden. And so Revelation tells us that that day is coming, that there is a day coming that Jesus will restore creation to its intended purpose. Jesus says that day is coming when all things will be made new. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what Revelation 6 tells us is that Jesus has co-opted the curses of sin and is using those curses for his own purposes. Or to use the symbolic imagery that we have here in chapter 6, Jesus dispatches the four horsemen of the apocalypse to exercise judgment on a world that defies him and seeks to destroy his people. And let me ask you, when you think of Jesus... Does your thinking of Jesus include these thoughts? Like, do they include these thoughts? As one who commissions the four horsemen of the apocalypse, do they include these thoughts as somebody who has the sovereign power to co-opt evil and destruction and disaster and use it for his own purposes, to destroy his enemies? I mean, some people, it's like we, we look at the Old Testament and, and we sort of interpret that as like, oh, that's like God's angry adolescent phase, right? And then the New Testament, he's got a kid, he chills out a little bit, he grows up, a little more mature. But when you read the scriptures, you see in the Old Testament, you, have, you see these great pictures of both God's wrath and his love and mercy. And the New Testament just intensifies both 
God's wrath and his mercy. It's not that God's one way in one time and another way in another time. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we read about his attributes, just his holiness and his justice and his judgment in the Old Testament. But if, if you pay attention, you also see his great love, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And you see those same things in the New Testament, but they're just intensified. I mean, the New Testament gives us the greatest expression of God's love for fallen human humanity in the historic events of Jesus, God's Son. And we also have the greatest expression of God's wrath in the New Testament on these pages in Revelation. Same Jesus. Same Jesus, all right? As Jesus said in John, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so when you have thoughts about Jesus, if you want to have a whole picture of the real Jesus, you need to, that needs to include a picture of a Jesus that is not to be messed with. A Jesus who, it's a scary thing when the man comes around. Here's the big idea. I want to give it to you on the front end. I know it was like a, kind of a lot of prefatory remarks, but I think it's important if we want to really understand how to read these next two chapters that we're going to be in over the next month. But I want to give you the, the big idea for our text this morning on the front end. It's that Jesus uses the powers of evil to accomplish his own sovereign will, to tear down his enemies and to build up his people. That's how big Jesus is, all right? Jesus is so big, he's so in control, he's so powerful and sovereign that he uses throughout history the powers of evil, the curses of sin to accomplish his own sovereign will and purpose, which includes both tearing down his enemies, but also building up his people. All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at these things in, the, in our text. Let me, let me pray for us before we start walking down there. God, thank you for just the time and privilege that we have to open your word and to be challenged with a fresh, big vision of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. I, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to Humbly be willing to let go of um, whatever small misperceptions we may have had about who Jesus is and how he works in history. And that we would also be humbly ready to hear your word, to receive it, to be changed by it. And my hope, Lord, is that this mysterious text like this in Revelation 6 would not only have us trembling before your throne, but resting in hope and in peace. I pray, God, that you would show us how what is true in this text is also good 
for our souls and beautiful in your plan. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So let's begin with the first part of verse one. John is continuing by describing, continuing to describe this vision he receives. And in in Revelation 6, verse 1, he starts by saying, Now I watched when the Lamb, speaking of Jesus, opened one of the seven seals. Now, do you remember last week when we were in chapter 5, this talk about the seven seals on the scroll? Do you guys remember that? With the throne of God and the creatures and just the brilliant worship. Like, I'll never forget that chapter. I'll never forget it. It is so majestic. It is so challenging to our preconceived notions of of who Christ is. I mean, at, at one point, John was weeping. Do you remember that? John was weeping because he sees in his vision this scroll And the scroll was sealed, not not to hide its contents like some commentators will say, because that didn't really matter because there was writing on both the inside and the outside. But it was sealed because a seal in the first century was a sign of who had the authority to open it. And not only was it sealed, but it had seven seals. Seven is, in the book of Revelation, the number of perfection. So it was perfectly sealed. It could only be unsealed by the one who perfectly met the requirements to open that seal. And John is weeping because what he knows and what he senses about this scroll is that this scroll contains the wisdom of God. This scroll contains God's plans for the world. This scroll contains the entire ultimate meaning of human history. And that to open this scroll was to unleash that wisdom. To open the scroll would be to unleash God's plan for history. To open the scroll would be to see the final consummation of creation's original intended purposes. But man, it's sealed with seven seals. And John starts weeping. He says, who can open this scroll? What happens? A messenger comes over to comfort him and says, behold, There's one who is worthy to open this scroll, and he's here right now. He is the Lion of Judah. And so this messenger describes Jesus as the Lion of Judah, and when John turns to look at Jesus, expecting to see this kingly, victorious, triumphant, uh, uh, like, illustration of Jesus as the lion of of Judah, what John sees instead is one who appeared as a lamb, a lamb that was slain. And what we learned last week is that this is what makes Jesus so amazing, 
This is what makes him so wonderful. This is what makes the gospel so unexpected, something that no one could have ever come up with. Is that the king who conquered death, the king who triumphs over evil, the king who, who, who comes to restore goodness to all creation, the one who's described as the Lion of Judah, stood there as a lamb who was slain. And as they sing, as the creatures sing around the throne about Jesus, they say, worthy are you to open the scroll because you were slain. I mean, that's why, that's why we decided to call our church King's Cross Church, all right? Because we wanted to say something about just this, this unique, unexpected part of the Christian message of the gospel, is that our king is a king who reigns, but he's a king who reigns and who got to his place of reign through the cross. That's what kind of king he is. He's a king who goes to the cross for sinners like me and like you. So Jesus appears in chapter 5 to open the scroll. And what we see is he takes off the seals one by one. He takes off seven seals and this afternoon, we're only going to look at four of those seals and their significance because they're tied to the four horsemen in verses one through eight. So the lamb begins to open the scroll. Look at verse one again. When John says, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures, that was one of the creatures around the throne, say with a voice like thunder, Come! Now, where else do we hear about a voice like thunder? Lots of places in the Bible, right? Lots of places we hear about a voice like thunder, and every single time it's talking about the voice of God. Because thunder is powerful, is it not? Thunder is loud. Thunder commands your attention. Thunder makes the ground quake. Thunder can be heard for miles. You guys remember when we had that lightning storm like a few weeks ago? How fun that was to just like run outside and see like the lightning crash here and then the thunder just echo throughout the valley. And then there was lightning over there and then it was over here and then it was over here and it like went on for hours, right? Uh, if you're like, if you had kids, if you have kids, you probably did what we did. You put your kids outside and you're like, oh, let's look at the sky together. It was mesmerizing, Right? The sky literally is lighting up. Electricity is flying through the air. And then, powerful. Voice like thunder says, come. And this is where we are introduced to the first horse. The first horse is a white horse. And its rider is the one that we can call the deceiver, all right? Number one, 
The first horse is a white horse, and his rider is deceiver. Look at verse 2. After hearing the thunderous invitation to come, John looks. It says, verse 2, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, the horseman imagery here, like the, the colored horse and the rider, like this imagery is borrowed from Zechariah chapter 6. I mentioned the book of Zechariah earlier, remember? If you want to understand Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. And so this horseman imagery is borrowed from Zechariah chapter 6, but there's minor differences between what we read about in Zechariah and here in Revelation 6. Those minor differences are that instead of four horses in, in Zechariah, there's four chariots with multiple horses. But each of those chariots, the multiple horses are, 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 are the same color. So it's four chariots with many horses, four different colors. Now in Zechariah, the colors are different. Um, and we also find out that they have no significance in Zechariah. Right? The colors seem to have a significance in Revelation, but they have no significance in Zechariah. But their purpose is similar, as often is. All right? A lot of times when the New Testament, when there's imagery or examples that are pulled from the Old Testament, that's never an accident. All right? And so he, he borrows from, 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 from Zechariah, and their purpose is similar. The purpose of Zechariah 6 and Revelation 6 are similar in that the chariots and the horses are to go to the ends of the earth, specifically to place judgment on the enemies of God's people. Now, this fourth horseman in Revelation 6 is described as having a bow and a crown. He's here to wage a war, right? Those are images of war. He's here to wage a war, and what kind of war is it that he's trying to wage? It's a war of beliefs, the war of worldviews. And you all might be looking at the text and being like, well, how do you know that, right? I don't see that here in the text. And it helps to know a little bit of history, because in the first century, uh, it was widely known that a bow coupled with a crown was a symbol of, of, of the Greek god Apollo. Apollo was a Greek god that was most associated with false prophecies and cults, wayward versions of, of Christianity that existed in, in, in the first century uh, were often associated with the symbol of Apollo, all right? And so what that tells us is that this writer represents false teachers and religions that imitate Jesus, which is probably why he's on top of a white horse, because we know in other places in Revelation that Jesus is the one who's supposed to sit on the white horse. And so this rider and his horse represents all the false teachers and false religions that try to imitate Jesus, that try to imitate uh, the message of true life that try to imitate, hey, here's how you find meaning, here's how you find purpose, here's how you find salvation. But eventually, this road leads to destruction. It leads people away from Jesus. 
Jesus warned about this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, when it says that Jesus answered them by the question that, the question that they were asking was, hey, when's the end going to come? And you notice he doesn't want to get them preoccupied with when the end is actually going to come, but he says to them, just see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So outside of the church community, this would be like all the many different religions and worldviews that point us to creation instead of the creator, that point us to creation instead of Christ for hope and salvation. Inside the church, this would refer, refer to false teachers, false doctrines about Jesus, which usually happens anytime you add something to the real Jesus, like saying like, oh yeah, Jesus, uh, to follow Jesus means you need to believe in him, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z, right? Uh, uh, there was a group called the Judaizers uh, in, in the first century uh, who were telling people like, hey, you know what, in order to truly belong to Jesus, you not only have to say you belong to him, but you got to get circumcised like all the Jews did, Right? Like, and until you do that and start like obeying like all these other uh, uh, Jewish ceremonial things, then, 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 then God's not going to accept you, right? Which is a way of saying, hey, look, faith in Jesus isn't enough. Which is another way of saying the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus isn't enough. And how wicked is that? You see, anytime you add to the real Jesus... or subtracting from him. In other words, saying that Jesus is enough to get you into heaven, but he's not enough to actually change your life. Anytime you add to the real Jesus or subtract from him, then you're really just following a Jesus of your own making. That diminishes the fullness of who Jesus is. One of our values as a church community is what we call wholeness. And part of what we mean by that is we want to be wholehearted disciples of Jesus, where we follow him with all that we are. But another part of what that means for us is that we want to make sure we're talking about the whole Jesus. Where we're not just, we're not just concerned about having right doctrine and knowing all the right answers, but not humbly loving our neighbors, or where we're not just only concerned about being like serving others and, and, and being liked and accepted by them, but we're unafraid to speak truth in love. You see, anytime you add or subtract from the real Jesus, you're just following a Jesus in your own making. Man, when we see the fullness of Jesus, that's powerful. We have the fullness of Jesus in all of who he is, in the whole of who he is. That's beautiful. Why would you want to add to that? Why would you want to subtract from that? You see, there's a way to believe in Jesus that has really nothing to do with the real Jesus we find in the scriptures. But it says that this first horse 
The white horse and his rider are riding out to wage a war. They're there to conquer. It says specifically, he came out conquering and to conquer, which is funny grammar, I know. But like back then when you talked that way, the point is um, it was just like a weird way to say that that he's relentless in his conquering. He's not going to give up in his efforts. He's going to be persistent. What that tells us is that as, for, every, for every time in human history that the gospel is going forth, Christians who are clinging to the teaching of the apostles is revealed in the scriptures, that as long as the gospel is going forth, there will always be false gospels that will seek to threaten what the Holy Spirit is doing throughout the world. There will always be false churches. There will always be false teachers and false doctrines. But remember how big Jesus is. Remember how big Jesus is that while our enemy might seek to lead us astray through the white horse and his rider, Jesus from his throne is going to use false teachers to accomplish his own purposes and judge his enemies. That is mind-blowing, right? That's mind-blowing. Like, like, what kind of chess maneuver is that that Jesus can do? That, like, as the enemy is seeking to lead the saints astray, Jesus is, all right, all right, I see your move, but here, checkmate, right? I'm going to use this against you. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 12. Paul talks about this. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So he's talking about false teaching here. In verse 10, he says, And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so in other words, those who end up following the false teaching are those who refuse to love the truth anyways, refuse to be saved by Jesus anyways. Verse 11 says, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Like, whoa. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false? Now, before that makes you like, you might be tempted to hear something like that one, like raise your fist to the heavens and just be like, just God, like how dare you, right? Like why, why would you do, that sounds wicked, that sounds evil. But you got to understand that in just the mysterious sovereignty of God and how he works throughout history is that there's multiple layers to this, right? There's multiple layers to this. Sin entered the world because of our rebellion. And because of our rebellion, creation is wasting away. 
and because creation is wasting away and because we're rebellious creatures, we're constantly trying to craft up false gods and idols for ourselves, right? Like we, we read the Old Testament about God's people, the nation of Israel, and how God delivered them. He gives them his law, and when Moses comes down from the mountain, what does he find them doing? Crafting an idol for themselves to worship instead of worshiping the one true God. And we, like, we're so proud and, and, and high and mighty that we read stuff like that, and we're like, these idiots. How could they possibly do that after everything God's done for them? But man, how often do we turn to other things? for meaning, for value, for direction. In other words, for worship than we do to the God who made us and saved us. And you see, if, if any of, one of us finds the truth, if anyone else comes to love the gospel, that is a gift of God's grace. That is a gift of God's grace. And if anyone of us rejects the gospel, if anyone rejects the gospel, God will give us over to our rejection, which is what our rebellious hearts wanted anyways. And that's why it says that God will do this in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness anyways. This is wild stuff, right? Like the first horseman, the first rider, the deceiver, he is out to lead people astray. But God's going to use his tactics to judge his enemies. And he's going to keep his own children safe. Let's look at the next horseman in verse 3. The next horse, the red horse and his rider that we might call violence. Number two, the red horse and violence. In verse 3, it says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now this horseman represents the enemy's desire to take peace away from humanity. This manifests itself at a micro level, in interpersonal conflict, right? When we cause maybe verbal violence to one another, when physical fights happen between two people, this is the human impulse that we all feel to, to make someone pay when they upset us. And we're a culture and a people that are given to rage, right? We get upset so easily. We get upset and mad over the most trivial things. We do this at an individual level. We do this as a cultural level. Cancel that person. Cancel that person. Cancel that person, right? Man, when we're angry, when we go after one another, 
It's usually why. It's usually because like we're not getting what we want. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a place to go, like when there's an injustice that's been done, to like go after someone in the name of justice, to stick up for the powerless, to stick up for the oppressed. That's something else entirely different. Typically, when we're angry, it's because we're not getting what we want, whether that's respect or peace, rest, money, a position, and then we react violently because we don't get what we wanted. The difference between one person and another is usually just the weapon of choice. Some use guns, others use words. If you zoom out at a macro level, this is when countries wage war against each other to expand their national dominion. This is when terrorism and world wars happen. Jesus, again, he warned of this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 when he said to his disciples, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. In verse 5, we have the third horseman, the black horse and his rider named Famine. Number three, the black horse and famine. In verse 5, it says, when, when he, when Jesus opened the third seal, I heard the living creatures say, the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. Now, these are not the scale, uh, scales of justice, which is kind of the modern use of the symbol. But these are the scales, literally, of measurement, which is a symbol of famine. We actually see that utilized in the book of Ezekiel, the Old Testament uh, prophetic book of Ezekiel. You have the, the, the symbol of a scale uh, to signify famine. And the reason is because food was carefully measured and rationed out whenever it became scarce. And then it says in verse 6, uh, as the passage continues of Revelation 6, it says, And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The irony here is it saying through the work of this writer, we'll end up in this place where we don't have the things that we need, but we'll have an abundance of what we don't need. A denarius was a day's wages. And so basically, as a result of the black horse in, and its rider, a day's wage was just enough to buy a little wheat and barely any more barley, just enough to feed a person for a single day. Not to mention like the other necessities that you'll need, like shelter and clothing. Not to mention like a family that you might have too. This isn't just a picture of starvation. This is a picture of inflation at those prices. So we're talking about things like the Great Depression, 
We're talking about widespread poverty, which ebbs and flows from continent to continent throughout history. That's the kind of famine that is being spoken about here. And what we learn is that in a similar way as he's done with the other ones, like while while the enemy might seek to make famine spread in order to destroy hope and to destroy God's people, God is going to work through the Spirit. He's going to work through the churches to push back against famine so that the famine will bring down God's enemies but help breathe hope somehow into God's people. And then lastly, we see the fourth horse, number four, the pale horse and his rider, death. The pale horse and death. We read in verse seven and eight, when it says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now, really quick, the, the Greek word there for pale is chloris, which is the word from which we get the word chlorine. All right? So this pale is like a greenish gray, like the color of a dead body. This is a morbid color. This is a gross color. This is nobody's favorite color, right? Greenish, grayish. If you've ever seen a a, a dead body, like what what do they say? Oh, the color's gone. The color's gone out. That's the idea here. It continues and it says its rider, the the horse's rider's name was Death. And this is the the, the first time where you're actually given the name of the rider. It says the rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. So this is the loss of life personified. This is death personified. And Hades, Hades is where people go when they're, they're dead, right? What the New Testament calls Sheol. Like, it's, it's the place of death. And it says, And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And man, if you lived in the ancient Near East in the first century, what you knew was that that area, Mediterranean area, was a land where life was decimated by death, and famine, and disease. And people were terrified. And Christians were likely like, man, where's God in all this? Where is he in all this? Death does not discriminate. Every single one of us dies. Ever since Genesis 3, death has come after every single person made in the image of God comes to us through disease. It comes to us through disaster. The pale horse rides around the world and throughout time, gathering up corpses in his wake. No one can escape this horse and its rider. So these are the four horsemen. 
of deceit, of violence, of famine, of death. The four horsemen and the enemy seeks to use them to snuff out the gospel. These four things have always been around since the beginning of time. What Revelation tells us is that because the gospel has gone out, because the the gospel has gone forth, and the Holy Spirit has come down, and because disciples are making disciples, and because churches are planting churches, and because the enemy does not like that, he does not want to see that happen, the four horsemen, they're gaining speed. They're gaining velocity. The enemy is seeking to take out the gospel, but Jesus is going to use their tactics to judge his enemies. Back to Matthew 24, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Again, one of the last sermons and teachings he gave to them. In Matthew 24, verses 12 to 14, it says, he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Do you notice what brings the world to an end in the words of Jesus? Was it economic forces? No. Famine? No disease, no disaster, no. It'll continue to go on and on and on and on. History will continue to go on. The earth will continue to spin. The planet will continue to make laps around the sun until Christ is done riding with his gospel through the nations. That's the story of the church. I mean, that's why we're here thousands of years later in the 21st century in Rancho Santa Margarita worshiping the same King Jesus. The church has survived these four horses and their riders for millennia. And when they come knocking on our door, We're going to continue singing the name of Jesus in their faces. The Bible doesn't promise peace and prosperity for the believer, but it does give us a God-centered realism. So we don't fall into either like a humanistic pessimism on one hand, where we're saying like, oh, the world's all going down the toilet anyways, right? So just do whatever you want. We're going to hell in a handbasket. Or on the other side, the era of humanistic optimism, where we just say like, hey, you know, if we evolve enough, if we get all our heads together, if we try hard enough, we'll create utopia on earth, and everything will be perfect. And what this passage does is it grounds us with a God-centered realism a gospel-grounded realism that we will experience wars and rumors of wars. We will experience violence and famine because these things still exist in a fallen world. But in the middle of all that, 
King Jesus is building his church. And when the church is complete, when the elect have come to saving faith, the curtain of history will fall. And God will finally bring an end to all the calamity. He'll bring an end to all that is wrong and all that is evil. And sin will not have the last say. The Savior will. Until then, bad things will happen. We'll experience them personally. We'll see them globally. But because we trust that Jesus is on his throne and that he is the ultimately sovereign one, we know that all those bad things will slowly pick away and destroy God's enemies. And by faith, by faith, those bad things will also triumphantly strengthen our hope, strengthen our faith. Man, if you look at church history, you'll see that it's actually when persecution came. It's actually when Christians were being threatened by death, experiencing famine, that the gospel of Jesus Christ exploded. The man has come around. And he will not be messed with. He will accomplish his sovereign purposes. The curses of evil are no match for him or his people. He'll use them to accomplish his own sovereign will to destroy his enemies and to strengthen his people. I want to close by reading these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. He's writing to Christians who are probably asking that same question, God, where are you in all this? And his answer, his comfort in Romans 8.35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church.
There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.